The question has to penetrate our hearts and minds. How, how can this be? How can God do that? He knows, and he saves and loves and redeems people to himself anyway. If you're our guest this morning, man, we're glad you're here. This is a good place to be on a Sunday morning, and we're going to be looking into the Word of God together. We're in the middle of a series on the book of Romans, and if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be one in the rack under your chair or nearby you, and if you don't have one there, just look around and say, hey, have you got one of those? Uh, we want you to look along with us. It's on page 947, the text we're looking at this morning, Romans chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 to 32. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, all 32 verses, we actually are going to cover that many verses, but not in detail. We're looking to try to do a couple of messages per chapter, and today we want to be able to give that opportunity for you to follow along with us. We're covering a big chunk in, in verses 1 to 32. It breaks down into three different sections this morning. So we're going to look at that together, and I'll read that passage, verses 25 to 32, in just a few moments. But um, the passage that we're talking about makes it necessary for us to ask the question, how can it be possible for God to do the kinds of things he does knowing who we are. He's made promises to us, and those promises are being fulfilled. They're they're being worked out. Now, if we don't believe those promises are going to be worked out, if we don't believe that God's actually going to do what he said, we're in a world of hurt. We, We don't have that song to sing. That's not for us. Have you had a promise that was made to you, and it didn't happen right away? And there was no fulfillment of it immediately. And and it went over a period of time and you didn't see anything about it. As a matter of fact, there may be a promise that was made to you. You didn't even know it was out there. Kathy and I had that happen years ago. We had uh, an uncle in the past somewhere who passed away. And in his will, he had left a promise for his heirs to receive a certain inheritance at a certain point through prescriptions that were in the will. We didn't know anything about that. And after a 1960s death... A promise was fulfilled in our life years later. And it wasn't massive, but I'm telling you what, that's a good phone call to get. You've been blessed with an inheritance, and you didn't even know the promise had been made. And so God does that, and yet he is working out a promise here for Israel that has been made 4,000 years before this comes to fruition. 4,000 years. And you get a little nervous if they promised you at the bank that you'd get a discount and you don't get it by Friday. I mean, you want to know what happens. And so as we look at this passage this morning, we want to hear the promise of God sounding out across the ages, not just centuries, but millennia, the promise of God, and he is not failing in his promises. Now, we ask, what's what's the context here? Chapters 9 to 11 are are the words that Paul is using to say something that we need to hear. We've been through chapters 1 to 8 where all these promises of God are laid out. All these assurances are given to us. This is what your God is like. This is what sin has done to you. This is who Jesus is. This is how he's taken away your sin. This is what belief looks like. And this is how Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And you get over to see the fullness of God's plans. All these promises all through first chapters 1 to 8. And then you get to chapter 9, and Paul's saying, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, yeah, but what about Israel? God made all kinds of promises to them. Uh, why are more Gentiles getting saved than Jews? What, what's going on there? Why is that happening? If God's promises are faithful, why is it not working with Israel? So in chapters 9, 10, 11, Paul's answering that question. And here in chapter 11, he drills down hard. And he expresses some things that we need to hear about a God who answers prayer, a God who is ever faithful to his promises, and a God who is not in any way deficient 
in doing everything he says. Why is that important? Because if we can't trust God to keep his promises, all the assurances that we give ourselves and talk about here in song and and preach about and teach about and, and read about, all those things are null and void if God reneges on his word. Right? It's very important that we understand that God never, never backs up on his word. Page 947 in your Bible or Romans chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 25 to 32, just give you the the substance of of a part of it, and then we're going to come back and, and begin to look at the entire passage. So let's read together, beginning in verse 25. Paul writes the Roman believers and says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they, being Israel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God... But now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Some of you just read that passage and you went, say it again. (laughs) I'm not sure I I got that. That's why we're here this morning, to unpack this together and learn what God has by way of his promises for us. So let's pray together and then we'll look at his word. Father, we ask you now to open our eyes and let us see. Let us recognize the uniqueness of your promises and the the magnitude of them to go beyond just the personal promise to this person or that person in the room, but to the nation and the people that you've called for your own possession. And so, Lord, we ask you now to be the one who speaks to us, each one, and gives us joy in being able to know that we can trust everything you say and do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, what do you think when you think of the word Israel? If you are a Bible person, if you've grown up on the scriptures, you think Israel, that's what we know Israel is. They're the Jewish people, and we know all about their history and how all that came about, and we we got that one. If you are not a Bible person, you hear Israel, and you think war. You think conflict in the Middle East. You, You think, why are they doing that? Or you think, why are others doing that to them? Depending on where you've come from and what you know. Israel becomes a lightning rod for us as we look at the modern world and the modern context. But what we do know is that for 4,000 years, God has made a promise that there will be a people, Israel. They would not always be in a land, but they would always be a nation. They would always be a people. And so we, we have to understand that God is keeping his promises in a way unlike we've seen it in almost any other nation on the planet. Now, back in... Oh, 1740, 1780 in that area, there was a, a king in Prussia. Not Russia, but Prussia. And his name was Frederick. He was the second Frederick, Frederick the Great. And he was getting a little cocky, a little big for his, his own shoes. And, and, uh, and he was uh, getting a little, little skeptical. And he was beginning to read some of the, the philosophers from France and hearing about Voltaire and all these guys and saying, uh, excuse me, I'm not sure I really believe all this stuff I've been taught all the years about God and his sovereignty. And, and definitely, I'm not sure that I'm believing at all that his word is true. And so he made a, a statement to his chaplain one day. He says, look, if your Bible is really true, 
It ought to be capable of very easy proof. You give me proof of the inspiration of the Bible in a word. Now, he had been saying, look, every time I ask that question, somebody hands me this huge book. He says, now, the answer is in here. Read, read through that and you'll understand. He says, I don't want to read all that. I don't have the desire or the time to go into it at that level. If your God is able to make his word true, then I need you to simplify. Give me in a word what is proof that God has given this word. A little bit of chapter, he says, I can give you the proof you asked for in one word. Israel. And that was the end of the conversation. It's like, hmm, yeah, well, there is that. They have existed for all these centuries. They have been the subject of everybody's derision and destructive instincts. They are still now, in 2015, the object of hostility, the likes of which the world has never seen toward a nation. And this is a secular state, Israel. What is going on? James Montgomery Boyce, uh, writing about that situation with Frederick, made, made an amazing observation. He says it this way. He says, It can hardly be doubted that the continuing existence of Israel as a distinct people throughout 4,000 years of her history is a striking phenomenon. Dispossessed of her homeland and dispersed throughout the world, Israel has nevertheless survived while other people in similar situations have not. Coupled with the Bible's identification of the Jews as God's elect people and its many prophecies concerning their unfolding history, the preservation of Israel as a people is strong evidence for the Bible being the inspired in an errant word of God. You want to know what's the proof of the word? Look at Israel. Give me an explanation for that, except that God promised that this was going to be the case. G- good luck with that. <laughs> and it's, just, it's just like, wow. Now, this is, a, this is an amazing thing. A lot of people can't understand the nature of the conflicts in the Middle East because they don't understand that God has always set aside a people for himself called Israel. Now, they have been... Uh, They've been a hot mess. I mean, they have been one messed up people all through the ages. Let's just go ahead and own that. Uh, most Israelites would own that. They would say, yes, there's been a, a sketchy history here. And, and God's saying, yes, in spite of that, and be- because of that, they have been actually cut off from some of the covenant benefits for many years. I've made promises of, of blessing or curse. They chose curse. And so they've experienced a lot of mess. They brought it on themselves. But because I have made promises to them, I'm going to keep my covenant promises. And so what we want to do this morning is walk through this chapter, just about 10 verses at a time, not quite that much, but about 10 verses to begin with, to be able to say, what are God's promises to Israel? What did he tell them? How are they holding out with this existence that cannot be explained except that God said that it would happen and he is providing the way for it to happen? It starts off with just the the foundation of our faith being able to say that God always keeps his word, that God's great purposes build on his unfailing promises, and there's no way to get around that. God is faithful always to his word. So what did he say? Well, let's begin by just looking at a sample of his commitments. Let's start with Abraham. What did he promise to Abraham? Genesis chapter 12, he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your people more numerous than the sands on the seashore and the stars. And I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to bless you, and through you, all the nations will be blessed. That's a big promise. Did God do it? He's still doing it. Then he comes to Moses. It's not been an easy road between Abraham and Moses. 
And yet he comes to Moses after seeing how stubborn and rebellious and stiff-necked is the word they use in the scriptures, uh, how that people have responded. He says to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, and then again 9, he says, you are a people. You are a people who are holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, he's chosen you. Now, he says, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Moses, you've got a screwed up people over here, buddy. They are a stiff-necked, rebellious people who have defied me, worshipped Baal, done all kinds of garbage all through their history. But they're my people. They're to be a people for my own possession. Now, I'm going to make those people your people, and my people will be the people through whom the Messiah will come, as we see in the rest of the prophecies that come out of that. So Abraham, he says... This is what's going to happen. You're going to be a father of nations. Moses, yeah, they've been a messed up people from the day I called them out of the loins of Abraham. But they're my people. They're my mess. And I love them. David, you're going to be my king, buddy. And you're never going to lack someone from your lineage to sit on the throne. And that will be my promise to you. And he says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when your days are fulfilled, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We hear echoes of that in Isaiah chapter 9. We, we sing about it every, every Christmas. For unto you a child is born, and unto you a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Uh, and, and goes on through, and then he gets to the end of it, says, and of the end of his government there shall be no end. Who's he talking about? He's talking about David's lineage, and from David's lineage comes the son of Jesse, the son of David, the son of man, the son of God. He said, you're never going to lack for somebody sitting on the throne. And who's sitting on the throne right now? Yes, his name is Jesus. He says, this is my promise to my people, Israel. Now, the Bible is filled with promises. We, we know that. We, we know that from, from cover to cover, there are thousands of promises. As a matter of fact, uh, somebody set out to try to f- calculate how many promises did God actually make to people? You just sort of track that thing down. And, and finally, they, somebody came up with a number several years ago. This is over 7,000 promises that were made by God to people who were to be called by his name. Matter of fact, one guy had calculated it down to like 7,357 or 87, something like that. I didn't have the patience to, to follow and make sure he got it all right. Just suffice it to say, God looks at his people and says, I'm going to tell you what. That's the southern God. <laughs> Let me tell you what. Uh, I mean, God in his sovereignty says to us, I have made multiple promises to you. Now, if I'm not the covenant-keeping God, and if I don't honor my word, and I don't keep my promises, then all bets are off. But if I'm the one who keeps my promises and I make them to my people, whatever promise I've made, you can count on the fact that I'm going to fulfill it. It may take a short time, it may take a long time, but I guarantee you, if it has come from my lips, I will indeed honor my word. Isaiah 55 says that, that, that my word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty. It'll accomplish that for which I sent it, and it will succeed in the thing for which I sent it forth. He says, my word will be accomplished just the way I said it. Now, 
what that promise looks like, it may be the massive promise that's been made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Moses, to David, to many of the others. It may be that kind of huge covenant promise to Israel, or it may be a promise to you that I don't care how big your sin is, my forgiveness is bigger. Do you believe me? Oh, God, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how big a God I am. My promise is I can forgive your sin if you will come to me. Well, God, I, I, don't, I don't know if you supply all my needs. I'm worried about tomorrow. He says, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ. You, you got a promise from God. Well, God, I don't, I don't know. Uh, is, is it possible maybe that, that I could get some prayer answered? Yeah, he's a, he's a prayer answering God. Well, what about God? What about some of these relationships that I'm in that are just fractured? Can you heal those and can you bring about reconciliation? I, I do that. I do that as well. Well, what about, and then you start listening in your own mind. Here are the promises that I'm, frankly, I'm hedging on. I'm not sure I believe God would do that in my life. Paul is saying, why in the world not? Why would you not believe the God who is the covenant-keeping God of Israel, who made all these promises to Israel about what their end would be? Why would you not believe him? Well, we, look, look at Israel. They're, they're cast out. He said, don't... Don't count this out. The fat lady has not sung yet. <laughs> this is not over. This is not over. There's a partial hardening, but this is not over. So what is he going to say? He says, listen, this is my promise that, that everything pertaining to life and godliness has been granted to you in Christ Jesus. And these great and magnificent promises have been granted to you so that you can walk in the fullness of the confidence that God is indeed able to do all that. Now, we, we see the promises made on God's side. What happens next? There's this a huge test of his endurance, can God outlast our rebellion? Can God look at what we do to him and against him and in rebellion and defiance against him? Can he look at that and still say, I'm going to keep my word? I want to wipe them out, but I'm going to keep my word. What does God do? It says that he is faithful in continuing to see the people for who they are, to recognize that, yes, they are a stiff-necked, rebellious obstinate people. And he says, uh, I want to make a, make a great nation out of Moses in, in Exodus 20, 32. He says, I, I see what they're like and I understand that. Now I'm going to still keep my promises. Through you, I'm going to make this a holy nation, a great nation still in spite of all they've done. Zechariah chapter 2 verse 8, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. This is a people who are very precious to me. Now, I have seen their rebellion. I have endured their stiff-necked hardness of heart, their defiance. I've seen all that, but they're the apple of my eye. They're the delight of my heart. Why, God? Well, it never was about them being worthy of it. It was always about my grace seeing through and beyond that and recognizing that these are a people for my own possession. And I have promised them that they will make it through. I promise them that that'll happen. And so he says, in, in spite of all this, my promises, my love endure forever, and there are always going to be remnants of my people hanging around. Always going to be my people somewhere hanging around because I am never going to give up. Now, there was a period of time, and it's still there, where there was a partial hardening. But even in the times of partial hardening, God says, I've still got a remnant in place. I'd encourage you to read through the book of, of Hosea when you get a chance this week. But particularly if you haven't got time to do the whole thing, just read Hosea 11. 
And let me just read you a portion of it. This is, this is how God feels about this remnant of his people. And, and hear the heart of God as, as he's heartbroken seeing how this is all unfolded. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I, I called my son. Do you hear this? When he was just a child, I, I loved this boy. I loved my people. He was just a young one, and, and I loved him out of Egypt. I called him my son. The more they were called, though, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. And yet, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they didn't know that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and the bands of love. And I, I came to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. This is, I've done this for them. And they just persisted in rebelling and persisted in rejecting and persisted in, in hating me and what I stood for. And then down in verses 8 and 9. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I? I've got too much love poured out on you. I, I have raised you from a baby. I've taught you how to walk. I have fed you when you couldn't feed yourself. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God, not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. I will keep a remnant of people for myself. Now, Paul's arguing this in a court of law, so to speak. He's presenting his case to the Romans in chapter 11, and he's saying to them, let me just tell you how this works. Let me just explain this for you. He says, has God rejected his people? Verse, verse 1, has he done that? Has God rejected Ephraim, the one he taught to walk and talk and fed and, and carried him when he was a baby? Has God rejected it? He says, by no means. And so exhibit A, Paul says, is God still turning away from his people? And, and what does Paul says? I'm a self-Israelite. I'm one. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm as Jewish as you can get, and I love Jesus. So no, God's not done with people from, from Israel loving Jesus. I'm exhibit A. You want to talk about somebody loving Jesus? I am one Jewish boy who loves the Messiah. He said, now, in case you're concerned about where this idea comes from, exhibit B, remember Elijah? Elijah was browbeating himself and just thinking, oh, woe is me. And he thought, you think I'll just eat some worms and dirt and go somewhere and die. And, and, and he says, do you not know? Elijah appealed to God against Israel. He says, Lord, they killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left. And they seek my life. What does God say to him? Excuse me, sir. Look around. <laughs> uh, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And then Paul says, look, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God's still saving his people. His promises are still getting fulfilled. Now, it's a small picture right now. He says, because the bulk of them are in a spirit of stupor, as we'll see in a minute. And their, their eyes are blinded. Their, their hearts are closed. Their, their ears won't listen. He said, that's going on. That's true. He says, but I've got me a remnant over here. Now, estimates of how many 
Jewish believers in Messiah there are in the United States, it's actually such a ridiculous span that you can't even put any credibility in it. They count how many Messianic congregations there are of Jewish heritage people who come to Messiah and they're worshiping Jesus as the Savior compared to the general population of Jewish folks. One group says, well, by our estimations and based on the number of congregations and all this, we estimate that 1.2 Jewish believers, 1.2 million Jewish believers are in our country. That's really exciting. But the Jews for Jesus website says, by our calculations, it's a number between 30,000 and 75,000. What? 1.2 million and 75,000, that's a, that's a big span. So I think basically what they're saying is, we don't know. We really don't have any idea. What we do know is in 1987, in Israel itself, in, in the land of Israel, there were about 3,000 professing believers in the Messiah. 1997, there were about 5,000 believers in the Messiah. In the year 2015, there were about 20,000 believers in Messiah. If I'm, if I'm graphing that, it's looking good. God's doing something special in building the size of the remnant. God will always have a remnant. And he's saying, not only are there still Israelites who are coming to faith, everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, whoever believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. He said, that's it. And so the offering is still out there. He says that the testimony of the scriptures is still there. My promise is still there. Whoever will believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And that's the promise. And so we get that picture from him. And he's saying there's no distinction, verse 12 of chapter 10, the the same Lord is Lord of all of the Jew and the Greek, bestowing riches on everyone who calls on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so for a period of time, Paul says, there is this separation. For a period of time, a partial hardening has happened. And then he tells us in this passage in verse 7 and 8, he says, God gave them a spirit of stupor. That doesn't even sound good, does it? Well, what's wrong with you? I have a spirit of stupor. You know, a little Advil maybe? I don't know what that is, but I don't think that's really what he's talking about. No, the idea of a spirit of stupor from the translation of the word in the original language talks about a desensitization. They're, they're bewildered by this stuff. It doesn't even make sense to them. There's a deadness, a numbness. And they hear, and the light is there, but they're blinded to it. They're shut off from it. The veil is still in place. It's not connecting anywhere. He says that is because the spirit of stupor is there because of the rebellion, because of their defiance, because they have rejected, because they will not believe. It persists in them. And for this period of time, there's a partial hardening of Israel. Why? Well, that gets us to the second section of verses. If you're looking at the clock, you're getting nervous, but that's okay. We, we have the, the big part on, in verses 1 to 10. The second part says that God is graciously using this time to include the Gentiles into the promises. And all us Gentiles say, yay and amen. We are, we are not part of the idea of the covenant people genetically with Abraham, but Those who are Jews or Gentiles who believe in his name, that belief is counted to us as righteousness. Paul's already talked about that earlier in Romans. Believe God has counted him as righteousness. All who do that, Jews, Greeks, the power of the gospel saves. I'm not ashamed of it, Paul says, because the gospel for the Jew or the the Greek, doesn't matter, it saves for all who will believe in it. So, So what we see here is that Paul is saying, look... Israel's wholesale rejection of God has provided a platform from which God has launched a worldwide evangelization process by which he is introducing 
people from every tribe, tongue, and nation all over the globe to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Dare we say, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah. Is that what he's doing? He said, yes, it is. Israel's stumble was not fatal, and it was not final, but it was certain. They stumbled, and therefore, now God is using this period of time. He's saying the inclusion of the Gentiles is there to arouse some jealousy among the Jewish people. And Paul is saying that. He says, I want to I just see this thing happening because I want to watch and see what God is going to do. Verse 11, I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? No, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, their sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. If their sin or their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches to the Gentile, how much more would their full inclusion mean? Okay, they screwed up and God's been able to do something with that for His glory. What happens when they are drafted and grafted right back into it again? God says, that's going to be a glorious day. Right now, Paul's pointing out their failure has meant riches for folks like us who are Gentiles. When they finally get it, what a day that will be. Can you imagine the riches on that day? And Paul says, this is what's coming. Israel is coming back. Right now, the Gentiles, you guys are being grafted into the vine. You were a bunch of wild shoots out there. <laughs> you, you, you were out there. Israel was the cultivated people who, whose roots were in the rich soil of the fertile ground of God's eternal word and his covenant promises. And, and God has now reached beyond, and he has cut off some of the branches of the vine of Israel. And he says, now I'm coming after you Gentiles, and I'm going to graft you in. I'm going to cut you off from where you were, and I'm going to bring you and graft you into the vine so that you can draw your life support from the promises of God in the roots that are there from all eternity and the promises of God for all his people who are to be called by his name, a holy nation. That's us and them and all who call on his name. He says, so they're being, they're being grafted in. There's a couple of issues here. One, we as Gentiles, now that we're grafted in, we get to partake of all these covenant promises of God. We get to enjoy the sweetness of that because it's coming up from the root system of the vine into which we have been grafted he says, but here's the warning. That's the good news. You, you get access to all that the bad news is. If you're not careful, you're going to get cocky. And you'll be conceited. And you'll think that somehow or another, you have a right to this. And you're going to begin, first of all, to look down on Israel. It will happen. He says, that's, that's exactly what takes place. Don't be arrogant, he says in verse 18, toward the branches. Remember, it's not you support the root. It's the root that supports you. So don't get cocky. Don't get arrogant. Hold your place. And about your place, it's, it's not as if we don't need to be concerned about being faithful just because we've been saved by His grace through faith and His word and His promises. It doesn't mean that you don't have to still pay attention to be obedient to God. It doesn't mean that you don't have to stay in submission to the will of your Father in heaven doesn't mean that you don't have to surrender your life daily to the lordship of Jesus in everything about you. He said, when Israel stopped doing that, God cut them off. You think he's going to do any less for you who are wild olive branches grafted in? If he did that to the natural 
cultivated branch, what do you think he'll do with you? He says, take heed and fear and walk humbly before God. It's all you can do. The branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in, you'll say. He says, well, that's true. This is verse 19. But they were broken off because of their unbelief. And you stand fast through faith or belief. So don't become proud, but fear. If he didn't spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note that the kindness and the severity of God toward those who have fallen are there. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, will be there. Otherwise, you're going to be cut off yourself. Hmm. Our heart response here? You're talking about some utmost humility? We come on bended knee to the throne and say, Thank you, Jesus, for grafting us in to life. What a great privilege. Now, there's one last section. And that's verses 25 to 32 that I read to begin with. God has an irrevocable calling that he has made to Israel. That is his promise. I'm not done with you people. It's not over. And Paul's answering the question that he's asking on behalf of those skeptics out there. Well, if that's the truth, Lord, then why does it seem that so many Gentiles have been saved and so many Jews have not? He said, I, I'll tell you why. God's got a plan that's unfolding. His great purpose is still at work. He has not short-sighted like we are, and he only sees the, the up close. He sees from his wisdom why it's necessary for a period of time for them to be partially hardened. Why? Why would you do that, God? Well, it's pretty simple, really. Frankly, if you get right down to it, the reason I'm doing that is to provide a way for the Gentiles in full number to come in. That's, that's what he tells us. He says, well, wait a minute, what, what does that mean? How and when is God preparing for the full number of the Gentiles to come in? Well, Paul says that, that's the mystery of it. We don't know that. God hadn't explained it to us. Now, a lot of people around us explain it all the time. Well, here's what that really means. You don't know that. You're, you're, you're snatching stuff, man. And well, that's what that means, you know. And you kind of go, I don't think you really got as much biblical certainty about that as maybe you think you have. And so what we know is that, that we don't know exactly. But what we do know is enough to be able to know that the future conversion of Israel will not occur until the full number of the Gentiles have come in. And when the full number of the Gentiles have come in, what happens then? I, I don't know. Exactly, but I know widely enough to get excited. And that is, that's when he will bring about an incredible revival in Israel. And all Israel, verse 26, will be saved. Really? You sure about that? Well, you, you read it. I'm not making it up. What, what's it say? Verse 25, there will be a partial hardening that's come upon Israel until the fullness of of the number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. When salvation of the Gentiles is complete, Israel's eyes are going to be open to the gospel, their ears will be able to understand it, they will embrace the Messiah, and they will embrace His saving grace. Now, what's the, what's the importance of that for us? We don't know when the fullness of the number of the Gentiles coming in is going to be over. Friends, that should put a sense of urgency in our hearts about sharing the gospel. 
Don't you think? We don't know when that's going to happen. We need to be about the business of making sure that that light is going out there so people can respond to it. Now, whether Paul is talking about or the Lord is speaking through him is saying, well, it's, it's the nation of Israel that we know right now that's going to experience this overwhelming revival. We don't know that. It, it could be. A lot of people are hoping it is. It could be decades. It could be another few centuries. We, we don't know that. There's enough evidence in the Scriptures to suggest that it might not be a couple of centuries out, but we don't really know. Frankly, we've we got a lot of ideas and a lot of hopes, but, but bottom line, what we do know is that when that number of the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then the eyes will be opened, the, the veil will drop, the people will see, and there will be a revival in the Israel that is. And that's the first thing we know, that there's, the future conversion occurs after the full number of the Gentiles has come in. The future conversion also will occur because God is committed to keep his covenant promise to the Jewish people. That's what he says. All Israel will be saved. Now, does that mean that every single Hebrew on the planet is going to come to Jesus? That's not what he's saying. If we said, you know, everybody in Raleigh was at the parade Saturday. We don't mean everybody in Raleigh was at the parade Saturday. We mean that there was a mess of folks at the parade Saturday. We, we, we don't understand this to mean that every single Jewish person or every person who has an Israeli background or everybody who has the seed of Abraham in them will be saved at that moment. No, there will still be hardness of heart. But the gospel is going to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Paul says. And this is an opportunity for us to understand that, yes, there will be a, a massive number of Jewish heritage people who will recognize he is the Messiah. And we do bow the knee to Jesus. You want to get your blood pressure up, go online and look up some of the dialogues between uh, folks from a Jewish heritage and folks from a Jewish Christian heritage going back and forth. Jesus is none of our concern. We have no interest in him. That is a total distraction. He has nothing to do with our religion. Oh, yeah. Because the scriptures say otherwise. Others have come up and said, well, here's the deal. There, there's two ways that God's going to accomplish this. He's not going to, I mean, he's not going to make all the Jews bow the knee to Jesus. I mean, he has a way through his covenant promise. He's going to work that out. No, he's not. One day, he says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not Jesus is going to be Lord for the Gentiles and those who came to Jesus early on. But then the Jewish people have another way in. No. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah as he is the Gentile Messiah. He is the one and only Messiah. And so whoever comes at that time, the revival will be among hearts that have been receptive to the truth and the reality that God is mighty to save. And he keeps his covenant promises. And there is perfect sufficiency in this Jesus and for anyone who calls on his name to be saved. So he calls on everybody to receive the gospel. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then he says, the conversion of my people will fulfill the covenant promise of my, my words from my lips and all 
Israel will be saved as I offer them an opportunity to respond to Messiah. And everyone, Jew or Gentile, will come and recognize Jesus is everything that he ever needed to be for all of us who always needed him to be that, Savior and Lord. To be clear, Jews must come to Jesus. Gentiles must come to Jesus. Shall we go on beyond to include what's under the subcategory Gentiles? Muslims must come to Jesus. Hindus must come to Jesus. Atheists and agnostics must come to Jesus if they were to be saved. Now, is this arrogance on our part? Is it? No. It is just saying God has made a provision for salvation for sinners to be restored to fellowship with him. And if the world thumbs their nose at that one provision, is that God's fault? No. He has called a people to be his own people who will trust in the provision of a sin-forgiving Savior who alone can take the penalty of sin in each of us upon himself. The unbelief of Israel, the unbelief of Gentiles, the unbelief of everyone upon himself to the cross. And the penalty that was due for our sin has been rendered paid in full at the cross. And now Jesus takes the dead, defying, decaying impact of sin to the grave with him. And on the third day, I'm getting ready to preach, be careful. He rose again, and the sin didn't come with him. And he offers us everlasting life as children of the Most High God in his name. Well, I think I'm coming up with another plan. Don't try it. This is from the eternal wisdom of God who knows how to save people. And so here's the the crux of it all. If God bailed out on this promise, we wouldn't really have any reason to trust him about anything. That's what Paul's saying. But in chapters 9 to 11, he says, oh, you can trust God for every word that I've written thus far. And let me tell you, let me, let me just kind of anticipate your challenge, skeptics. Jesus is even still going to be the Messiah who saves the Jewish people. He has never broken a promise, and he never will. Now, it's taken 4,000 years for this one to be satisfied. But don't give up, because the day is coming when the fullness of the Gentiles have come into the kingdom. God's going to raise the flag, and they're going to salute as he steps to the stage of the center of history and says, all who will believe in my name, come. So does that mean that Jesus can answer your prayers? Oh, yeah. Does it mean that he can give you peace when you are in turmoil? Oh, yeah. Does it mean that no matter how far you went away from him and how severe and ugly your sin was, he can forgive you and bring you back? You put any promise in the scriptures before this picture of a God who saves and watch how your trouble with believing fades away in the light of the massiveness of the great purposes of God being fulfilled through the glorious, gracious promises of that same God who was mighty to save and who was gloriously giving us every opportunity to believe in his name. Proverbs 3 says in verse 5, you trust in the Lord with your whole heart. Don't lean on your own understanding because you'll get confused 
and you won't really be able to figure out how God's able to do all this. But you trust in the Lord with your whole heart and don't lean on your own understanding. And then in uh, Psalm 37, verse 4, he says, you just delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He is able to do that. You can trust that God always keeps his promises. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to pray and then we're going to sing. And this is not a time for us to kind of hold back. We're going to sing about 10,000 reasons to give him praise. And we're not going to list them all, but we're going to sing about them. And I want your heart to be engaged at a level where you, you, can't, you can't sit there very long. We're going to receive our offering during that time. And so you'll, you'll help the guys out, if, if you will, by staying seated until the place by you. But after that, there's something going to be a spring in your seat that just says, I, I, I have to praise him. Because this is the everlasting covenant-keeping God who has promised me life everlasting and everything about it in his name. So let's pray together and let's move into our worship. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to praise you. To be able to have your word unfold different angles of the light into this gem of the gospel and, and see the, the reflective and refractive rays splitting out in all different directions and giving us every reason to praise you for being the faithful God you are. You keep your promises and we are absolutely astounded that you have called us and that you will keep us and that you will hold us dear. Father, you are the God who does all things well. May we praise you with our whole hearts now as we worship the King of glory and praise you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.